Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. This is episode 208. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is my co-host, Perry Romanowski. Hey, Valerie. How's it going? Oh, it's good. I'm drinking some tea that has tepid water, but I'm looking forward to the show. I'm drinking tea with hot water, and I'm also looking forward to the show. On today's program, we're going to talk about course, a couple news stories that came up and answer your questions about, is there a bar shampoo or bar conditioner that works as well as the ones out of a bottle? Why can't everyone use retinol? Is sugaring dangerous? And does it work as well as waxing? And finally, do peptides have an effect beyond moisturizing? And is there a best one to pick? Are you ready? I am ready for that. Hey, uh, you know, I like to do a little bit of inane chit-chat before we start, but you know what I did last Friday? What'd you do? I, my wife and I went to a spa for two hours. Oh, wow. How was it? Was it your first spa experience? No, I've actually been to this place before. It's, it's more of a bathhouse than a spa, I guess. But essentially, you go in there, you know, you're wearing swim trunks or whatever, and they have a salt pool where you can float and then they have music in in the water so you can hear it. Um, then there's whirlpools and steam rooms and cold oh, plunges. Wow. But I bring this up because they had a big uh, they had a big salt lick. Although I don't think you're supposed to lick it, but it was this gigantic mound of salt. And then you're supposed to, uh, I guess, exfoliate with it, so rub it all over your body, and then rinse it off. And I did that, and. Uh, Boy, my my skin felt uh, very very smooth. Oh wow, very cool. The big problem with it though was that uh, all the salt kept getting stuck in my chest hairs. <laughs> I think I still have some in there. Really? Yeah, it's awful. When I was working at Alberta, we had bought the St. Ives brand, and so we had the St. Ives apricot scrub. Mm-hmm. And everybody was given at the company. Everybody was given a sample, and the the president was out there, and she's like. Hey, you all should use this product. This is a great product. Here, I want everybody to use it. I'm giving everybody a sample. And I used it and the like the little walnut shells were stuck in my chest hair and were there for like weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I can't exfoliate. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you coming up this weekend. Yeah, I can't believe you're coming to LA. Uh for those of you who didn't listen to last week's episode, Perry is coming to Los Angeles for uh, Green Beauty Night, which is an event put on by uh, another podcast called the Eco Well, and he'll be on a panel. And I live in LA, so I'm super excited that Perry's coming to town. Yeah, that'll be fun. I think that's on Saturday. I'll put a link to that event in the show notes. Yeah, we'll uh, probably do an Instagram live um, or a, a little get together, uh, maybe at a hotel bar or something like that. So stay tuned to our Instagram account where we will make that announcement if you're in the LA area. Yeah, that'll be fun. Speaking of fun, how about some beauty science news? Let's do it. Well, Valerie, I'll take this one. Um, I saw this story in Cosmetics Design where they were interviewing one of the regulatory people at the Cosmetics Europe, and he was saying that the cosmetic industry needs to take a holistic approach to explaining ingredient safety. Oh, 
He makes some claims that while the cosmetics industry is extensively regulated, which I thought was kind of funny, but he does preface it by saying, especially in Europe, he says that uh, there continues to be consumer concern over certain ingredients that are actually perfectly safe. So that's just for consumers. Uh, that is the view from people inside the industry and these ingredients that we use. I mean, if you're going to be honest about the safety information, the ingredients we use, we use them at safe levels. And that's what the scientists and the, the regulators in the industry think. Now, the marketers don't always think that, right? Yeah, it's actually very interesting because usually you hear this sentiment that, oh, consumers in the U.S. don't think products are safe. They're so much safer in Europe. And here's this guy who's the head of cosmetics Europe. He's saying that consumers there aren't thinking products are safe, uh, despite the fact that they do have safety. So it's interesting that even with such, quote unquote, extensive regulation, uh, people still have this perception that what they have isn't safe. That's interesting. Exactly. And first he blames, he blames a few things, the rise of digital media. And he says that it's the goal of the EU regulators to address this problem in the coming years. Uh, and then he goes on to say that uh, some, one of the problems are these uh, product scanning apps, for example, uh, he says that they were, quote, a little misleading and unduly alarming. Oh, like the app, like Think Dirty or something like that? <laughs> yes, yes. Those, those kind of apps. That where you can scan the thing and it'll tell you if there's some sort of dirty ingredient in it. But uh, yeah, those weren't put together by people who know toxicology. Those are put together by fear mongers. <laughs> <laughs> so he says that the industry needs to do a better job of explaining to consumers how synthetic chemicals are not inherently more dangerous than natural ones. And he thinks that if we take a holistic approach to explain why ingredients in cosmetics are safe, that is going to help reassure consumers. I have to say, the guy seems a lot more optimistic than me. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think there are a few... He touches on a few reasons that consumers are misinformed, but I, I think there are a few more important reasons why the problem of chemophobia propagates. I blame it on a few things. First, there's the cosmetic marketers. Amen. Yeah, I'm truly, <laughs> like the, the small and the new companies... You know, they can't make products that work better than the products that big corporation makes. Now, they can make products that work pretty much just as good or good enough, right? But they don't have access to the same, like, R&D or time or consumer testing. Uh, they, they just don't have that ability. And so when you can't make a product that works as well as a competitor, you have to find some other way to compete. They also can't compete uh, in terms of advertising, like P&G, L'Oreal, Unilever. Those guys have a ton of money to spend on TV commercials to build up their brands. Small brands just don't have that, so they rely a lot more on social media. And, well, the main reason, how, the main way that you get attention on social media is that you say controversial things, right? Telling the people that ingredients in their competitors' products cause cancer is pretty much an effective way to get people to not use those products. Well, I think uh, cosmetic marketers, it doesn't exist only at smaller new companies. I will say that even at large companies, these uh, organizations have excellent marketing departments because marketing sells products, even if it's not uh, you know, the truth. That's why we exist to really tell you about the science behind your beauty products. But yeah. uh, you know, the cosmetic marketer thing, it's at it's at all companies and it's a worldwide 
staffing perspective, I'll say that companies have like even, uh, you know, I was working with an R and D lab, uh, in Europe at one time and even they were like, Oh, the marketing team. And so I was like, that's so good to know that this, uh, this battle between R and D who I think are like the truth seekers, uh, and marketing exists worldwide. It was pretty funny. I completely agree that this is a problem with both uh, small companies and big companies. The, the next thing that I think is there's the problem of the media. Mm -hmm. You know, similarly, stories about products that are causing cancer or otherwise scaring people are much more interesting than those that tell the truth. But I mean, which article would you read? Say the headline is, is your baby shampoo causing cancer? Or the headline is, baby shampoo continues to be perfectly safe. <laughs> it's You're just not going to click on the one that says everything's fine. Boring. Right. And then there's places like Netflix who put out these scary documentaries like The Goop Lab or their uh, other awful one, Stink. Um, and they sort of get more attention uh, than sort of less provocative series like A User's Guide to Cheating Death. Because uh, fear just attracts more attention in a way that truth telling doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are the pseudo experts. Anyone can write anything about anything on the internet and they can get attention. I mean, actual ex experts are get drowned out by people who are more effective communicators on social media. And, you know, scientists are also busy in the lab doing science, so they don't necessarily have time to get on social media and publish consistent contact content, which is really required to build a fan base. I mean, if you want to do social media right, you really have to dedicate a lot of time to it. Yeah. And when you're doing that, you're not doing science. I will say the other thing about experts being able to come out and speak the truth is I, I do a lot of work during the day and there's only so much I can share uh, just because I'm not a privilege to discuss everything I'm doing. So everything I, I personally publish on social media has to be my own work, has to be my own time. Um, so that's challenging too. And there are a lot of chemists who work at companies with uh, really strict social media policies. So uh, really a lot of the independent scientists you see are independent scientists um, speaking to work. Absolutely. Actually, the beauty brains, when we started, Randy and I both worked at a company and the company would not have approved us doing the beauty brains. Um, in fact, we used to write articles for trade journals, how-to stuff for other cosmetic chemists in the industry, Nothing, not, no secrets or anything. And we had to run all of those by our management before they would even get published. So when you work for a company, you are not necessarily free to say whatever you want. All views my own and not that of my employer. I have a disclaimer on pretty much everything I do. <laughs> it is interesting that uh, that Instagram uh, site uh, Estee Laundry and uh, how they they sort of maintain uh, an anonymity. They, well, they probably work for a company that wouldn't allow them to do it. <laughs> yeah. At least not what they're doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So just to wrap this up, you know, what can the industry do? I don't really know. I'd say the most important thing would be for industry brands to stop propagating BS that they know is fake. I mean, all these clean beauty brands are really harming the industry. And unfortunately, I see the big companies starting to do this, too. Ugh. What really needs to happen is that consumers have to stop falling for these sensational stories, too. They need to stop supporting brands that participate in fear marketing. Your cosmetics are not harming you, and brands who claim to be the clean brands, they're just not safer for you than the brands that don't claim that. All right, Valerie, I'm, I'm off my soapbox there. All right. I basically agree with what you said. 
Well, I uh, found an interesting story this week. Scientists discover UV protection may not be enough to prevent sun damage. Uh-oh. Yeah, so um, pretty much if you walk on planet Earth and uh, you exist as a human being, you may know that uh, the sun can damage your skin. Uh, it can burn it. It can cause blisters. It can uh, cause skin cancer, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we all know that you need to have some sort of sun protection, even going back in, even into historic times. We covered ourselves from the sun. We you know, protected ourselves from its rays, you know, he is, is tiring and exhausting and all that kind of stuff. So no news there. Uh, but, uh, scientists at Newcastle university in the UK did a study where they looked at, uh, all the components of the sun's rays. So not just ultraviolet light, but visible light and infrared light and found that it also damaged the skin. So a lot of skincare brands provide products for ultraviolet protection, uh, which helps prevent wrinkles, pigmentation, burning, but they say it may be beneficial if your product also has products that can protect against infrared right and visible light because they uh, found that while it didn't damage the top layer of the skin's dermis layer, um, cells in the dermis layer were damaged by visible and infrared light as well. So you didn't see stuff on the top, but you saw it in the bottom and it's not good. Wow, so these guys are saying that uh, UV protection is no longer enough. Now you need visible and ultra-visible protection, too. <laughs> visible and infrared, right. Ah, so <laughs> while those don't cause sunburn and they're not known directly to be a skin cancer risk, uh, they do cause other detriments such as premature aging, uneven skin tone, loss of elasticity, and all that. So yeah, they just recommend cover yourself pretty much. Uh, I mean, just practice sun safety, be sun smart, get out of the sun, wear sunglasses. Uh, or stay in your house and live in a cave. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder, um, you know, I, I've seen infrared uh, pop up every now and again. And I know that uh, within the last 10 years, there have been a ton of studies, um, at least on visible light and hair uh, damage. But yeah, just interesting. I wonder if we'll start to see more products pop up that aren't just about UV or pollution, but UV visible infrared, like all these light sources. I know we're seeing blue light a lot yeah, already, which the, comes the from your, light, yeah. your, your computer screen or your iPad or whatever, but yeah. Or this, uh, led light on my, uh, on my microphone here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No wonder I have that spot on my cheek. <laughs> yeah. Not a, not a big story, but just something I thought, hmm, are we going to start to see more products popping up or at least uh, more research being done in this area? Yeah. Look for that in 2020. Yeah. Let's get to some questions. Look, Valerie, we have an audio question. Hey, Perry and Valerie. I'm Jennifer from Oregon. It's becoming increasingly important to me to seek out beauty products that incorporate minimal packaging. When it comes to hair care, I've tried bars, both made locally and the Ethique brand available at Target and on Amazon. Neither performed well on my coarse, wavy hair. My question is, is it wishful thinking to hope for a bar shampoo or conditioner that is going to leave my hair as well as conventional products packaged in a plastic bottle? Do you know of any brands that I might try that don't come in a plastic bottle? Thank you, and I look forward to your response. 
All right, Jennifer, thanks so much for asking that question. Uh, we actually talked about the chemistry of solid bar shampoos and conditioners back on episode 178. You can go back and listen to that to get a more in-depth discussion. That was one of our earlier together podcasts. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think, too, that's how we started to see uh, these solid bars pop back up. Basically, these formulas use the same ingredients as standard formulas, but with a lot less water. Lush is a big purveyor of the solid shampoo bars, and they use sodium lauryl sulfate as their main solid detergent. They also have some other formulas, which include sodium laureth sulfate, which is an ethoxylated version of SLS, disodium laureth sulfosuccinate. Another popular ingredient in these bar shampoos is sodium cocoyl isethionate. These are all standard shampoo ingredients that you would find in a traditional shampoo in a bottle, and you could also find them in the bars. Yeah, I saw another shampoo bar that was also based on sodium cocoate, which that's more of a soap. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not going to work very well on hair. So, Yeah. The benefit about these formulas is that they do come in plastic-free containers. So typically you're just buying the actual product, which I think is their main attribute. If you're looking for them because you're going to get different types of ingredients, I don't think uh, that you're going to get that because they're using the same detergents that are used in regular shampoos. And I don't think you're going to get a performance benefit from that route. Yeah, it's just kind of harder to uh, deliver from that solid, right? It's not, yeah, the liquid's just so much easier to spread through your hair. Yeah, when you're formulating these types of shampoos, you are working really hard to get them solubilized, like SLS, sodium cocoyl acetheinate. They don't easily go into water; they have very low solubilities, and so it's a lot of work to try to get them in water and to stay in there, and so. To me, and I've used a lot of shampoo bars in my day to try them uh, because I do like the plastic-free context that they they offer. It's really hard to take a small piece in your hand and to effectively solubilize it in the water and then work it through the hair. I think um, in that way, they don't work as well as traditional shampoos because, because partially of that. I don't know what the exact measurements are, but when you when you take a couple pumps of a shampoo and put it in your hand, yeah, you're you're getting more water in there, but the ingredients are also effectively incorporated and you can work that um, through your hand into your hair very easily. If you have this shampoo bar, you're pretty much only working uh, with solids and I, I don't think you can effectively deliver them over the hair. Yeah, I mean, and the way you use it, I guess, I mean, the way I use these things is what I, I'd rub it on my hands, mm -hmm. create some foam there and then spread that foam through my hair. I mean, at that point, you've really diluted it uh, by a lot. I, I don't really know exactly what the measurement would be, but I'd guess you're probably getting probably 10 times less ingredients using a, a, a bar shampoo versus a squeeze bottle. And not only less ingredients, but just less effective distribution. And sort of the same thing for a solid conditioner. I actually think solid conditioners, like if you gave me a choice, like you have to use a shampoo or a conditioner in a solid form, Hands down, I would choose the shampoo, um, A, because, you know, A, we need to clean our hair, but the solid conditioners I find really, really don't work. So for a solid conditioner, uh, they typically are similar formula types, except uh, they incorporate things like cocoa butter, shea butter, and other conditioning ingredients that you may find in a conventional conditioner like the heme trimonium chloride. Uh, they also do contain surfactants so that you can uh, help rinse the stuff 
from your hair. I, um, you know, part of the conditioning thing is like getting on and incorporating it, but then you also need to make them rinsable. And when you have a lot of these oils or butters, they just don't rinse easily from the hair. I've also found that you can't put too much conditioning agents into the bar format. It's a formula limitation. Oh, yeah. And two, um, distribution is, is really important. When you have a traditional conditioner, you have this um, oil and water emulsion, and you have really tiny particle size, and those distribute really well over the length of the whole hair fiber and allow really even deposition of these cationic conditioning agents. Uh, and with the solid conditioner, it's just very hard to get that. Additionally, in a conditioner, you want to use ingredients uh, like silicones that really help improve the hair feel and the experience. And if they're functionalized, silicones offer an additional benefit and you really can't put those in the solid shampoo bars. Uh, yeah. But again, if, if you're looking at these solids from a, a plastic free benefit, if that's really important to you, go that route. But I just don't think that they work as well from a functional point of view as a shampoo or conditioner conventional bottle. I don't think they ever will. I, I think it's just a technological limitation. It's, it's not so much something that formulators just haven't figured out. I, my prediction is that the format just does not uh, lend itself very well to good, the, the same kind of performance that you get from a liquid. Exactly. Yeah. And two, I have used a lot of these again and I've left them in my shower and they're not shower friendly. You got to be able to store them in a good place. They kind of, uh, you know, ooze over time. You know what you need? You need like a plastic container where you can just put it in. (laughs) You're bad. (laughs) Well, what do we have next? Our next question comes to us from Amy. Amy says, hi, Beauty Brains. Love your podcast and watching my friends get angry as I debunk their crazy claims. (laughs) (laughs) I worked in cosmetics for years, and it's crazy the scripts we'd be given to push products. Thank goodness for science-based, reliable info like yours. The question is, why can't all skin types acclimate to retinoids or retin-A? I've tried everything, uh, easing into it, and, and I'm just getting nothing but irritation. I'm 55 and would love to be using it, you know, because it's proven to work, but I've just had no luck. Thanks for keeping it real. Oh, thanks so much, Amy. You know, I'm in your camp. I have rosacea and I can't use uh, these types of ingredients either. And that actually was my dermatologist recommendation uh, to stay away from them. Yeah. So I'm super sad because, uh, you know, they do really work and I'm very jealous of people who do get to use them. Yeah. Yeah. But before we get to answering, I just want to apologize for uh, causing any problem with your friends. (laughs) But, (laughs) But, you know, sometimes reality is much less appealing than these marketing stories. Let's talk a little bit about retinoids. Retinoic acid, uh, also known as Retin-A or triretinoin, and sometimes you'll find it as the brand Accutane. That's a Mm -hmm. prescription drug used to treat acne. And while that's its primary function, uh, dermatologists also prescribe it for things like evening out your complexion and reducing fine lines and wrinkles. This makes it one of the most valuable anti-aging ingredients. However, retinoic acid is not available in any cosmetic because it can only be purchased with a prescription from your doctor. Now, on the other hand, retinol is not a prescription drug. It is the alcohol form of retinoic acid. That means They're chemically related, and it does have some similar skin refining properties. Uh, However, because it's the alcohol form, it's not nearly as effective as the acid. 
Uh, and neither are other derivatives that you might see as retinoids like retinaldehyde or retinal palmitate. Those are generally ingredients that have been you know, chemically modified. So you start with a, a retinoic acid, you chemically modify it to make it less irritating. Uh, unfortunately, that makes it less effective. And another problem with retinol is that it's not very stable or and it's easily oxidized. Formulating with it is pretty tough. Yeah, it is. That means that exposure to oxygen, light, or even other ingredients in the same formula can render this ingredient even less effective because they're reacting with it. And then it is either changed and not available to work as it's intended. Of course, Valerie, that also means that uh, less effective probably means that it's going to be less irritating. So maybe that's a plus. But as far as irritation goes, first, I, I don't really have an answer to why some skin types can tolerate retinoids and others can't. You know, it could be a combination of a bunch of things uh, like genetics, environment, your personal pain tolerance level. Uh, there probably is, isn't really just one simple answer. But as far as what you might be able to try, the, I would say the less effective retinoids are also going to be less irritating. So, you know, you might start with those things and see if you get any benefit. And I'd also suggest that you use a lower level at the start. You might consider mixing your retinol lotion with some similar non-retinol containing lotion so you could dilute your exposure. And also they say that putting it on dry skin can help reduce problems. Yeah, when you buy these uh, products with retinol, they typically tell you uh, what the use level is. I actually wouldn't buy a product that doesn't disclose the level. A really good brand that's done their diligence will disclose the level to you uh, so that you know what you're being exposed to and what the level is. So you could buy like 0.25%, half a percent, 1%, um, and such. So uh, that's what Perry's talking about um, in, in using different levels. Yeah, and generally lower levels are going to be less irritating or and you know less harsh on your skin. Ultimately, though, for some people, they just can't use some ingredients. I mean, like it's the me. same with yeah, like you. <laughs> like it's poor like old with, Valerie can't use retinol. First world problem. You you can't use nutmeg either, can you? <laughs> Cinnamon, nutmeg, clove, ginger. Yeah. Man, that is so sad. I, you know, I just uh, I was grocery shopping and they had in the bargain bin all the pumpkin spice holiday pudding and i've just been buying boxes and boxes of it that would my, kill me that's my kryptonite if i were wife, superman that's my kryptonite oh yeah my wife finds my love of pudding to be just terrible yeah she's i don't think like, that's a good pudding flavor she's like that's baby food <laughs> but i love pumpkin spice pudding Anyway, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, we don't have cures for the problems of uh, not being able to tolerate certain ingredients. But on the plus side, daily moisturizing, avoiding smoking, and staying out of the sun are going to provide you a lot of the anti-aging benefits that you might be able to get also with retinoids. So you can still get some anti-aging benefits. Oh, good. Question three. Elizabeth writes... I listened to episode 192 of the podcast and was surprised to hear you group home sugaring recipes in with a dangerous kitchen chemistry segment. Oh, I did we that got, one. We got, we got to bring back that kitchen chemistry segment. Yeah, it, it's yeah. fun. It's fun. 
Yeah, yeah maybe next time. All right. I did that one myself back when I made less money, and it seemed to work just as well as waxing kits from the store. Is there a danger here I'm not catching? These days I make more and get my legs waxed at a salon. In the last salon, I went to offered sugaring as well as waxing, though they certainly weren't using the home recipe kind. They claim that the sugar sticks less to the skin than wax, but just as strongly to the hair, so it's less painful. I couldn't tell any difference myself. Do you think that claim is true? So we have a couple couple questions here we'll address. So yeah. first, I'm sorry if it sounded like we were saying that sugaring was unsafe. I think we were just referring to just home treatments in general. And I think that maybe some are better left to uh, salon professionals. So in the specific uh, series that we talked about, I had talked about a YouTube video that I was watching where they had all these different home recipes and they had said, um, oh, it's such a problem when you get uh, hair removal done and then you have all these home bumps. And then the next recipe unrelated to that was, uh, Oh, Hey, do your own sugaring at home, which, you know, if you're not an experienced waxer, you can actually, uh, you know, do some damage to your skin and maybe have some issues with ingrown hairs and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, really it was just the chronology of those two together that we were laughing at a little, but also, um, you know, waxing is typically a professional service. And personally me, I would just, um, you know, I've tried to wax myself and it's not good. So I think it's stuff better left uh, to professionals. These things may not seem dangerous, but there is some harm that you can do trying some things at home. So sugaring is actually a fine process. Sugaring to remove hair has been done for a really long time. I don't know exactly how long, but pretty long. So it's not like it's a new technology. Uh, I think so- I saw like the ancient Egyptians were doing uh, sugaring. So way back then. Oh, I'm sure. And then they would they would eat afterwards. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> gross. I don't know about that. Um, anyway, so some people do claim that sugaring can lead to a more permanent hair removal, but I don't think that's true. Both uh, With both waxing and sugaring, you are actually pulling the hair out of yeah, wherever out of you're removing right, it from. Yeah. yeah, out of the follicle, yeah. but you're not actually removing the cells that create the hair within the follicle. So hair is just going to grow back, but maybe it is more long in longevity than shaving perhaps. Absolutely. Cause when you shave, you just shave off the surface of the hair, maybe mm-hmm. you get a little lower, but when you're doing this waxing or even sugaring, you're, you know, you're pulling the root out, but you're not affecting the cells that are growing new hair. So it's not going to be a permanent thing. Exactly. No. Uh, but going back to sugaring, uh, the sugaring paste you get at a salon is made from sugar and an acid like citric acid, which you know, maybe could come from lemon juice. In sugaring, the sugar actually forms crystals that trap the hair. Essentially, it's like putting caramel on your skin and letting it harden. Oh, and that then, sounds fun. And then <laughs> it sounds delicious, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you put it, it's like putting caramel on your skin. Caramel's made from sugars, right? That have set up a crystalline structure to be stretched sure. like that. Uh, and then you rip it off. Whereas the waxes are typically uh, made up of beeswax or a synthetic wax plus a rosin or some other sticky polymer. The sticky polymer attaches to the hair and then comes out when you pull out the product. So they work in the same way basically and basically both can hurt i Ouch. <laughs> i'm immune to waxing now but i remember when i would first get my eyebrows waxed i would be like wowee um i don't know that one hurts less than the other because you're pulling hair out with the same mechanism so maybe if it is true that sugaring doesn't stick to the skin as much as wax sticks to the skin there's less of this like owie effect but i i don't think so i think it's probably going to hurt either way yeah. 
yeah, I mean, from just from an adhesive standpoint, there's probably not much difference in mechanism. It's also going to depend on the formula of the wax and the sugar, like the concentrations of the things that they're like adhesiveness depends on the formulation to some extent too so you can't just simply say oh waxing doesn't adhere as much as sugaring um it really depends on the formula yeah and a lot of it too at the end of the day also goes back to application and user experience i've had people wax me where it's virtually pretty painless. And then I've had people wax me where, you know what, it's pretty painful. So I think that goes back to the professional or do it at home. Um, Even professional, it can uh, differ from esthetician to esthetician. So I think less formula, more in person, uh, can you get that variation? And of course, every person is different as well. Yeah, I like your personal pain tolerance or something. Yeah. But I think the bottom line here is that as as far as effectiveness and safety goes, there's not really much difference between sugaring and waxing. Yeah, just really down to personal preference. Have you done either, Perry? Um, you, you know, when I was a youth, I used to take duct tape and put it on my skin <laughs> and to rip the hairs. But no. Wow, just we as... need to get you to a waxing salon. I, I want you to know what it's like to be me. Well, my wife keeps uh, uh, suggesting I go and get my... Uh, the, the hair on my back removed. <laughs> well, you know, you went to a spa. That's your first step. Maybe you can try waxing next. It just seems like a lot of work. I mean, I barely shaved my face. Well, it's not too much work. You just lay there and the esthetician does all the work. No, but I mean, you got to keep going back, right? Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that's the hard part. I'll be honest. Making the appointments and, and getting there is, is the toughest part of it. I tell you what, I have a hard enough time just getting my hair cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, do uh, we have time for one more question today, Perry? It uh, looks like we do. This one comes to us from Kayla. Kayla says, there is some concern that peptides are too large to have any other benefits other than being a humectant. What do you think of this? Is there really any superior peptide? Thank mm. you so much for your show and your time. Well, yeah. We actually covered peptides, uh, Randy and I did, way back in episode 55. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the show back in those days, although it's not going to be nearly as entertaining as the shows with Valerie and I. But <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that does explain a little bit more than uh, peptides than we'll go into on this show. Um, Valerie, what do you think of these peptides in cosmetics? Well, I think... It depends who you ask. If you ask the raw material suppliers of these peptides, they'll absolutely tell you amazing things. I was actually at a meeting one time and we were trying to uh, discuss all these abstracts that had been submitted saying, hey, who should we have speak at this event? And there was one on peptides. And I was like, you know, peptides are kind of passe, like 15 years ago, cool, matrixyl peptides, anti-aging. And uh, now I I think it's a little bit older of a technology and I got my head ripped off uh, mostly (laughs) by two people who work for companies that sell peptides, but uh, they were just really adamant that this technology is legitimate and it works. And I do agree there is a lot of science behind peptides, but also I keep in mind who's doing the research. So uh, why don't you tell us some of the science? You know, that that story is funny because I, on my other blog, Chemist Corner, where I write about cosmetic ingredients, I did an article on peptides. And some some well-known industry person who is a big fan of peptides 
took exception <laughs> that I was not more of a rock rock. <laughs> Think so. so we had we had a little industry sp- a spat about that, <laughs> but I'm always willing to learn, and so I looked actually into this a bit more. Uh, there was a review article published in the journal Cosmetics back in 2017, and they reviewed the work that had been done on 28 different peptides which have been suggested for use as a topical skin treatment. There was actually also another review article published in 2017 in the International Journal of Cosmetic Science, and they looked at uh, uh, 19 peptides. So there was a lot of overlap. But all that is to say that there is a lot of peptides and there's a lot of published research, which is pretty rare for cosmetic ingredients. (laughs) There There are a ton of especially anti-aging ingredients where there might be one study and then marketers just run with it. But there were legitimately, you know, 40, over 40 studies that were in these review papers. So whether there is a superior peptide or not is up for debate. Now, let me preface this talk by saying that if peptides really had the effect that the researchers claim here, these things would be illegal drugs. Peptides are said to stimulate collagen growth, uh, stimulate elastin. You know, cosmetics are not allowed to stimulate your biochemistry. They're supposed to stimulate keratinocyte growth. Um, They're supposed to stop cell apoptosis and just a number of other things that affect the body's biochemistry. That's the whole point of what these peptides are in your products for. And it's just not legal for cosmetics to interfere with the body's biochemistry. All right. So, So there is that. This is really one of the reasons that claims about peptides remain pretty vague in general. If they came out and claimed what they really want to claim, they want to say, they really, these brands really want to say, this product is going to stop the formation of wrinkles and it's going to rebuild your skin. If they said that, their products would be illegal. So they go more with, it reduces the appearance of wrinkles and helps with your skin tone. Yeah, we still have to stick to cosmetics claims, right? Because these aren't approved drug ingredients. So we, yeah, we no have matter to use what... really gentle claims, yeah. Right, no matter what the research says, they you can't always say the things. But so let's look at what has been proven. Now, as I said, there were a number of studies that looked at all kinds of different peptides. Many of the published studies are on cell cultures, and I don't find those terribly helpful for consumers. Nah. You know, th- this type of work is useful for scientists to identify ingredients that are worth looking at more in depth. Um, but it doesn't really tell you if it's going to work if it's applied on a person's skin, right? If you have a Petri dish full of skin cells and you drop something on there and it changes some sort of uh, biochemical marker, that's a lot different than saying, put it in this lotion and put it on your skin and get a benefit. So I kind of ignored those studies. There were also a number of studies that had a small number of subjects, uh, or they used peptides in conjunction with some other ingredient like niacinamide or retinoids. (laughs) It's yeah. like, why did they do that? <laughs> well, they probably wanted to make sure they were going to show a benefit, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's weird. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't I don't really know. That would be my guess. I mean, it probably because they didn't get a good enough result with the peptide alone. So they wanted some results. Yeah. Maybe they didn't publish all of their research, but they said, hey, we did this. We'll, d- we'll just publish that. Yeah, there is a publication bias. Nobody publishes negative data, you know? <laughs> it's like... 
hey, I ran this study about peptides and I proved that they don't do anything. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Press. Nobody, nobody <laughs> yeah. wants to publish that. <laughs> yeah. Now, having said all that, there were some studies that were actually kind of impressive. They were placebo-controlled, they were double-blind, and they, had a, they even had a good number of subjects. Uh, one had, like, uh, over 60, another had over 70. I mean, nice. not, not thousands of subjects, but more than, like, 20, which a lot of them had 20. So, um, so um, the peptides that appeared to work the best, or at least had the most rigorous science behind it by my measures, uh, include a couple. So the first was a signal and carrier peptide called copper peptide GHK-CU. I've heard some good things about this one. The INCI name that you'd find on your cosmetic product is going to be copper tripeptide-1. Anyway, in a couple of double-blind placebo-controlled studies, they found that it reduced wrinkles, increased skin density, and thickness. And they showed these results in four weeks of use. So that was kind of impressive. There was another peptide that showed some promise. This was palmitoyl pentapeptide 4, or PAL-KTTKS. This one's also a good one. I've, I've worked with this one. It has some good stuff. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, this is a signal peptide that is thought to stimulate collagen and elastin production. And they had a couple of double-blinded placebo-controlled studies that found significant reduction in fine lines and wrinkles and reduced bumpy texture. So it sounds like those two are probably the ones that have at least the most supporting science. So what do you think of that, Valerie? It sounds incredible. It does. Now, I remain a little skeptical about recommending ingredients like these, and there's really two reasons. And maybe I'm less skeptical than Valerie or other cosmetic chemists, but this is I would, I would say it, it sounds incredible, but I think I'm equally as skeptical as you. So I, I want to hear your reasons, and then oh. I'll tell you why I'm a little oh, sure, skeptical. Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is that there aren't a lot of reproduced studies. And when I say reproduced, uh, say the same study by one group and then the same study done by another group. And the way science works is, you know, you you have one one study, but you should have reproducible studies. It before, should be reproducible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I haven't seen those reproduced studies. So, And the things have been around for, like you said, 15 plus years. So it makes me wonder, you know, why aren't these things being reproduced? You know, one study doesn't really mean much, and they're often funded by the manufacturers who you know, <laughs> they may not be, you know, unbiased. Hidden agenda, or not even hidden. They have an agenda. They, <laughs> right. they want to prove something yeah. works. Yeah, exactly. Now, the second reason that I'm hesitant about these ingredients is that I, I didn't see what control placebo formula they were using. Mm -hmm. So there's a trick that researchers can do and this happens with raw materials all the time, if they want to prove that the ingredient has some kind of property that, that they want to prove, the first strategy is you compare it to no treatment. So you have no treatment and your treatment, and then you show, hey, it works, right? <laughs> so if the untreated side looks worse than the treated side, voila, you have, you have some data for your marketing people to say, hey, this technology works. Now, people like me will just dismiss that and say, well, obviously you didn't have a control, so... That's, that data is crap. So if you don't want to be easily dismissed, it's better when you compare yourself to a placebo. 
So it, that way, if an ingredient shows an effect, then at least you can say that the ingredient is doing something o over what the placebo is. Now, the trick here is that when you want to really show an effect, you want to use an ineffective placebo. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to show a wrinkle reduction, you might make a cream with, you know, a lower level of moisturizing ingredients versus that same cream with your peptide. That way, you know, you're going to highlight the benefits of that peptide while using a product that, you know, is going to highlight the fact that a bad moisturizer doesn't reduce wrinkles <laughs> much. Yeah. So, so if the ingredient actually had those wrinkle reducing powers, it's going to be easier to see. It, it, from a researcher standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. The only problem with that is that from a consumer standpoint, that's not really what you want to know. You you don't know want to know exactly whether an ingredient has an effect. You want to know whether that ingredient is the best thing to use. What they should really do is compare themselves to the best moisturizer out there that has proven anti-aging effects. Uh, and, you know, I don't know, Neutrogena or something like that. You know, it's, it's just one of the standard ones. Mm -hmm. You know, con because consumers don't really care about the ingredient per se, they really want to know whether the overall treatment is the best. If, if the peptides don't work better than a good moisturizer, then they're not really worth paying that extra money for, right? Yeah. I mean, my challenge um, in skepticism is the companies have to be using an effective amount of these peptides. So what That's percentage of the thing, studies yeah. done at, you know, are using it in the same formats? These peptides are expensive. They're not cheap. And so a lot of brands will put these um, in at label claim, which means not an effective dose, not the dose that the studies were done at, just so that they can say they're using it. And, and really, you have to look at how the study was done and you as the consumer have to be using it in the same way. So that's why I'm skeptical. This is actually why I didn't stay in skincare and I moved to hair because with skin, it's like, yeah, I put this cream on with these fancy peptides, but I have to wait years potentially to see if I really did look younger, but then I have no comparison. <laughs> yeah. Or at least a, or at least a month later, right? <laughs> I <laughs> aged anyway. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that's why I'm skeptical. And who remembers what their skin looked like a month ago? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So anyway, if you are sold on peptides, though, in skincare, uh, and there is some science behind it, the ones that have the best science behind it are copper tripeptide-1 and palmitoyl pentapeptide-4. So that's what you want to look for on the ingredient lists. I'll include a link to the research article about peptides in skincare in the show notes. Thanks so much, Perry. Um, and thanks to you all for listening. I think that's all we have time for today. Yeah, we talked the hell out of this show, didn't we? Yep. All right. If you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Also, follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we have a Facebook page. Hey, and if you enjoy the beauty brains, uh, the fact that we don't have commercials and we're not selling our souls to uh, audible books and uh, new mattresses, <laughs> well, you, you can thank our good friends over at Patreon. And if you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This is going to help keep the show ad-free. You know, Valerie, there are some, uh, there's some new beauty podcasts I've been listening to, and... 
oh, it's it's good information, but boy, it's hard to get through those commercials. A lot of ads, yeah. yeah it's tough. I'm, I'm really thankful we don't do them. Yeah. Well, the best way to help keep us that way is to subscribe to us on Patreon. So just go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens!